welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers and 24 offices across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me interview a different Foley attorney through our one-on-one, candid conversations, you'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bio, stories of obstacles and triumphs, with some funny moments in between. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. Hello, and welcome back. In this episode, I speak with Galen Yu. Galen is a senior counsel in Foley and Lardner's LA office where he focuses on patent prosecution. We have a fun and wide-ranging discussion to covering a variety of topics, including what it was like for Galen growing up in China and moving to the U.S. during middle school, how it is he decided to focus on IP law and why that was actually a family decision. He covers quite a bit about cross-cultural communications shares a really funny story about a stately oil painting that he now has in his office of himself, and he gives some good tips about gardening, especially to anybody looking to grow tomatoes. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Galen. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm so happy to have you here, and as I'm making all of my guests do, before we jump in and talk about your path to law and your path to Foley, I want you to share that like 30 to 90 second, I guess I'll call it the elevator pitch or the tell me about yourself response that you give when you're giving people a sense of who you are professionally at a networking event or if you are on a professional panel. What is your response? Sure. My name's Kaylin Yu. I went to UCLA for engineering school and USC for law school, so native of LA. I work at the firm Foley and Lartner. I joined the firm in 2013 as a first year associate and I summered in the firm before that. My practice is intellectual property and in particular patent prosecution in the electronics art. What I do is I put together a patent application based on technical descriptions made by inventors and I get them a patent. Thank you so much for that. And as I mentioned to you, I wanted to ask you about that because I'm curious about everything that came before it, everything that led up to you being a patent attorney at Foley and Larder. So let's start with the basics. Where did you grow up? So I was born in Beijing, China, and I I grew up there. I left when I was about 12 and came to the United States. My mother came Before that, my mom left fairly early when I was in elementary school, probably when I was uh, six or seven. And uh, she was looking for a place where she felt like she could be more free in whatever she was doing. So she left in pursuit of a better life. So then I came when I was right at when I was in middle school, didn't speak a word of English. Wow. Yeah, but I was able to learn quickly. You know, it's surprising how... Uh, how much you learn when you're with a group of people. How old were you? So is that like 11, 12? Yeah, about 11, 12, right at seventh grade. Yeah, so I came to uh, Arcadia, California, which is next to Pasadena. So Arcadia's got famous for its racetrack. 
So I went to middle school and high school. And I want to stop you there and just ask a couple of questions because, you know, it's your life. It's your life experience. You can say it matter of factly. Sure. That's hard in the sense. So you, you moved here when you were 11, 12. I'm assuming it, you moved in with your mom when after, what, five years? Yeah. She'd been away. She was like, come to the U.S. Is that, that how it happened? Yeah. So she wanted me to be with her. And, you know, she just thought in general there was more opportunities as an academic in the United States. My family, we I'm actually a fourth generation engineer. Wow. My parents and my grandparents' parents were all engineers. So they valued knowledge. Yeah. Wow. Did your mom come over here to work as an engineer? I think she did, but you know, as when she came over to the United States, she was about 30 years old. So almost 40, I think. So that was kind of difficult for her because, you know, she didn't have any US degree. So she did work at computer companies where she fixed motherboards, but you know, she's done everything. She's done computer related stuff. She was a real estate agent and she still is. She was selling houses. Now she's selling uh, vineyards and she was accountant and she learned database management. So she was kind of doing software. So she was just kind of learning stuff. She loves learning new stuff and getting certificates and going to school. That's amazing. It's taking a lot in me not to go off on a very long aside about your mother and make this podcast about her. <laughs> She'll be happy about it. Right. But because you know, I know we were talking a little bit about the style of this podcast, a little bit about you know the Joe Rogan format, because we're not going to have a two and a half hour podcast. I cannot do that. But I that's amazing. Everything you shared about her. I am curious, coming to the US in middle school, if you can look back at that what was that like? Was there culture shock? How was that transition for you? I think it was fine when you were a kid. I mean, Arcadia had a lot of immigrants, a lot of Asian immigrants, Chinese immigrants as well from Taiwan, from Hong Kong. So, you know, it was kind of familiar, but at the same time, not very familiar because everybody was trying to speak English. And that was what's good about it. Because as a kid, when you came to the States, if you were surrounded by a bunch of people who didn't want to speak English, they just want to kind of stay in their, um, I guess, within their language and cultural bounds, it would be difficult for you to accept the United States, especially accept it as a multicultural place. So, you know, it was good because I had friends who helped me learn. I had friends who corrected me, uh, partly because they just want to show that their English was better. Wow. But th that worked out. I think we're all improved. We all try to correct each other. And uh, we had great teachers that helped us. And, you know, you'll be surprised to, to know what they teach you at cultural classes, at these ESL classes in uh, middle school. Yes, please go on. I have no idea. They would teach you about Thanksgiving. Uh, I know you, you learn about Thanksgiving at the regular English classes and history classes as well. But to us, the teacher even brought turkey and stuffing and raspberry sauce and stuff like that, just the very typical stuff, just really try to introduce you to the culture. I think they've done a good job. I think that was the right way to go about it. Because, you know, now if you're going to ask me, which holiday do I celebrate? If I were to choose one, Thanksgiving or Chinese New Year, I'd say Thanksgiving because I can make a good turkey. Oh my gosh. And then what was that class, the cultural class, in addition to the school you were going to, or were you going to a school that included that component? So... I think all ESL classes, English as second language classes, have a component where it is cultural and historical, where they, they teach you about American culture and practices. 
And then they some schools in like in Pasadena. I also went to South Pasadena for about three months. They have a separate history class for ESL students, where they do more of the culture stuff. I was not aware of this, but it makes a lot of sense. All right, so you get here in middle school, as you said, you are a fourth generation engineer. At what point was it clear that you were going to go to college for engineering? Kind of take me through that decision process. Right. So I think it was just the fact that I was a fortune engineer. I just didn't know what to do. Like all kids, I mean, I didn't want to declare undecided major when I was going to college. And you know, I didn't really like engineering, to be honest with you. <gasps> yes, I'm laughing. <laughs> <laughs> my parents and my grandparents—they are electrical engineers, and but they do a lot of geology. So they build equipment to access certain things like rocks and content of certain mineral deposits or water within the rocks and the dirt in general. So we went to Yellowstone where there's a lot of rocks, where you can actually see the different rock formations and they had a yeah, the layers. Yeah, like the stratification and stuff like that. And they were just discussing, you know, they were just arguing about what type of rocks they were and how it, it was formed. And I just, I had no interest in it. So I put in my earbuds. I thought I didn't really want to do engineering, but then I didn't know what else to do. So we thought, you know, we as a family kind of decided by we as a family, I mean them, decided it was probably better to be a patent attorney. I, we actually thought about doing that when I was in high school. Really? Yeah. So they said, they said that, you know, if you have an engineering degree and if you don't make it in law school because your English sucks, maybe you can still be an engineer. That will be the safety net. So I was like, okay, fine. I didn't know what else to do. So it just kind of worked out. So for the listener, Galen can see my face right now. We, this is not a video podcast, but he could see me and my mouth was just like, wait, what? The entire time he said that. And I just have to spin on that a little bit. So you're in high school. And as you said, you said we, but you know, the family decided when you were what, maybe was that like 15, 16, that that made sense as a path? Right. So my family really cared about my education. So they sent me to cram school for SATs. And as a part of that cram school, they give you free college counseling. So they would just ask you, okay, what kind of school do you want to go to? And I didn't really know. I didn't really know about anything. So I said, okay, how about Columbia? How about Brown? I think that's the two, I mean, that's the only two school I knew actually. And they're like, okay, so what major do you want to take? And I said, oh, okay, maybe engineering. And the counselor was like, well, those schools are not famous for their engineering. How about you become a patent attorney so you can go to those schools and still be an engineer? That totally does not make sense in retrospect. I mean, it just, it was, the suggestion was kind of determined based on false premises, but it just kind of worked out. My mom's like, yeah, that's cool. You're an attorney. You can be an attorney. You know, you don't have to compete with people who are really good at English if you need the technology. So it just kind of worked out. Insightful. What were your thoughts? Were you just like, okay, makes sense. I'll do that. Well, at that time, I think what, what was happening was there was an Asian American engineer, Wen Ho Lee, who was working at a U.S. company. I think it was a government-related project or with the government. I'm not sure. But he was allegedly stealing trade secrets from this company and funneling to China. And he was being prosecuted. So at that time in our community, it just seemed like he was only taking work home because he was, I mean, as an Asian American, we all know, we all try to work real hard, you know, try to take work home and try to finish project on time. So he put certain data in the USB drive and took it home. 
with him to, just to work. That made more sense to us. We don't know if that's really happened, but the community at large recognized that might be a very strong possibility. And he was being prosecuted. And I think the general feeling was it was kind of unfair. So we thought, how do we give ourselves a voice in the United States? Because the Asian American community had not been a very vocal community in terms of, I guess, you know, political power. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole Asian American culture is work hard and, you know, try to give your best back to the community, but not to make a big deal about anything. And I thought, you know, maybe being an attorney really matters because then I could help at least myself, you know, like, you know, the lot. I mean, not be able, yeah. And I think it, it did because when my mother was working as a accountant, she was kind of terminated unfairly because they were saying the reason for termination was she didn't speak English well, but they've been working with her for two years that had never come up in any of her reviews. So, you know, I felt like if I knew the law back then, I could have done something about it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So all that together just made me feel like, you know, I could help at least myself or the people around me. I I don't have a huge dream of having everybody. That's for Jesus. But at least I can contribute to it. So that kind of solidified the decision. Well, and I appreciate you sharing that and walking through it because we've talked before and you told me a lot about your background, which I was telling you is one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast, because your story and others are just so incredibly interesting. And I'm just going to state this another way, what I think you just said, but you essentially said that the perspective as you know, an immigrant or first generation person to the US was like, as a lawyer, at least I'll know the laws. So I don't know if you want to even further expand on what you just said, but it really struck me when you told me that the first time. Yeah. I mean, at the most fundamental level, it I can only say it is just the American dream, right? Where we came to this country, I didn't speak English. My parents didn't have, really have any degrees here. And we we're able to achieve a lot in this country, right? By going to school, by investing into our future. I mean, we've invested a lot, right? Law school is pretty expensive. And that's a, it's actually a huge risk in retrospect. <laughs> that's why I'm not sure if I want my kids to be lawyers. You know, it's a lot of investment in time and energy. And a lot of times it might not turn out well. So you know, we took a chance and we worked hard and it turned out well. I was really lucky to be working with great clients in the firm. So a lot of it is just really about the American dream where you can start from nothing, literally nothing in this country and really pull yourself up. And that is the dream. I mean, we, I guess we don't really think about it all that often. Like, why do we do it? But you were to ask. That's what it is. Yeah. Yep. That's the motivator. I appreciate you elaborating on that. And I now want to ask a bit about law school joining Foley. But before we do, I did want to ask, so I know you go by Jay Galen, you. Yep. And I did want to ask, so was Galen's not your given name? And I was curious if you'd share, share what your given name is and share how it is that you go by Galen. Oh, okay. So my Chinese name is Jia Ning. So it literally means serenity, which is a very girly name, even in Chinese. Really? I like that a lot, but go on. <laughs> I think it's great. Yeah. So it's um, like peace and serenity. Like my grandfather gave me that name. My grandfather had two names for my mother to pick. One is that. The other one is shepherd because, you know, they lived in Inner Mongolia at the time. So there's a lot of shepherding going on. And my mom says shepherding is just kind of dumb. So she picked the first one. <laughs> and then when I came to the United States, my mother said, you know, everybody who has a name starting with G-A is really rich. This is amazing. Your mom's fantastic. 
that's literally what she said. She said, well, like Bill Gates, like Getty in the Getty Museum. It's like, mom, Getty started with GE, not GH. She's like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. She found the pattern though. She found the pattern. Yeah. So she opened up a dictionary and she found Galen. She had no idea that was a famous Greek physician. So she was like, well, why don't you have Galen? That's a unique name. Nobody has that name. Why don't you just be Galen? I'm like, okay, fine. So yeah, that's where my two names come from. So I became a U.S. citizen. I just added Galen as part of my middle name. That is fantastic. I'm so happy that I asked you that question. <laughs> Thank you for telling me the answer to that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, fast forward a bit. You go to law school. I'm not sure. Is there anything worth kind of highlighting about that selection process or attending? And I've already forgotten. Oh, University of Southern California. That's right. Yeah. So I just wanted to stay in LA because it just felt easier. If I were just to spend a lot of money going to law school, it might just make sense to just stay around where it is familiar. Didn't really have a huge ambition, as you can tell. So, you know, USC was between USC and UCLA, and I just wanted to a change of scenery to go to the other side of town. So that's why I went to USC. That's fantastic. Although you're totally underselling yourself with the, I didn't have a huge ambition. As last I checked, USC is a pretty good law school. (laughs) All right. So then how Foley and Lardner? Why Foley and Lardner? How did that come to be? When I was applying for a summer job for a a summer associate position, I think the economy was getting better. It were coming out of that dip, but it was still not that great. And as you mentioned, that was 2012. Okay. So you graduated 2012. So yeah, you're still affected by the Great Recession of like 08, 09. Yeah. So the class before us was just really difficult and more so the class before. But it was getting better. I had multiple interviews. But, you know, I just never encountered an interview where... So I interviewed with uh, my mentor, Ted Rittmaster, um, and a bunch of associates in the LA office for the electronics group. And he was just really nice. He had um, long earlobes in Chinese culture, allegedly. That means this person is very lucky and very kind, you know, because Buddha had long earlobes. That's amazing. Yeah, I hope you don't cut that part out. <laughs> I won't. Keep it, keep it, keep it <laughs> Yeah, well, that's what my mom said, at least. And, you know, he was just, he had a really kind face and he was really nice. He talked about the practice in a way where it made me feel like it was immensely interesting. It, it made I me feel like, yeah, like I could be a part of something. Whereas the other interviews I went to, it was like, well, you got to make sure you write well. You make sure you got to work hard. You got to make sure like you, you stick it through. I mean, yeah, I know that. I, I know that I had to write well, but it was, you know, you don't have to put it in a way where it was just kind of annoying. You know, they were, they were being big from lawyers, in other words. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it sounds like he just had an, the kindness, but also the energy around it. It was that something extra. Yeah. He has this way to go about it where he's, he talks really slow, but really clearly. And, you know, it's, you are energized. Yeah. Yeah. You, you feel like, well, this is a wise man. There's some, there's, there's somebody you can actually learn things from. And the associates are really, really nice. I, you know, now I think uh, Justin Sobaje is still here. He was real nice. He was like, yeah, like, you know, you, you got to impress Ted and this is how you impress him. And I was like, wow, this guy's giving me tips. He's helping. Yeah. This guy is really helping. And, you know, he remains a very, very helpful, I guess, personal connection at Foley just throughout the years. That's fantastic. Yeah. So you joined, that was your presumably 2L summer of law school? Yeah, that's right. You graduate. And what I always find interesting about talking to the IP lawyers is unlike a lot of the other lawyers, you know earlier on what your practice area is going to be. Because for many summer associates, and even well, we've usually decided by the time you're first year, but they're still in that like, oh, I could do corporate, I could do litigation. If anything, they just know they're not going to do IP. 
Yeah. <laughs> but for the IP lawyers, you come in knowing, and I just, I find that, that really interesting. I'm going to bounce around a little bit because you know, I have a favorite story that I'd love you to share. Sure. So when was it that you visited Foley's Milwaukee office for the first time? Just answer that. And then I want to set this up a little bit more. Sure. I think it was when I was a summer program coordinator where I was having that uh, summer event at Chicago with the summers. So I just took a, a morning and took the train to Milwaukee because I heard it's real nice. I yeah. never been to Milwaukee at all. I never been to the mothership. So I just thought I'd take the morning to visit. So I ask you that because when we talked before, I don't know how we got here, but I was so glad we did. We talked about how at HQ, like many large organizations or law firms, her older and Foley was founded in 1842. There is a wall of, you know, firm CEOs leadership, like you see in a lot of places. And of course, with the older organizations, that tends to be a wall of white men. So could you tell me your thought process when you saw some of those portraits at Foley? Yeah. So, you know, one thing that strikes me is that, you know, you know, the firm has been there for over 170 some years, 80 some years. And when you go to the mothership and you see all these paintings of the leadership in the past, and you're just like, wow, they're like president. They're like, you know, that's literally what you see at, at DC. Stately. It looks very stately. Yeah. And, they, you know, they have these long beards and they have these clothing and it just made me feel like, wow, you know, this is, I just thought they would be all pictures, but they are paintings. I said, oh, of course, you know, 180 years ago, they would be paintings. And I just thought, you know, what would be cool if I had my own painting and maybe one day, maybe one day, I can hang my own paintings along with the rest of the giants that are hanging on the wall. It doesn't yeah. mean I have to be the firm's leadership. It just means maybe just I just got to get it on the wall. <laughs> and tell me, how did you get the painting? You have to share the how it was created. Yeah. So my wife is a very good artist, very good oil painter. She, in fact, lectures at a university, at an American university in China before coming to the States. She loves drawing and our house is filled with her paintings. So she asked me what I wanted for my birthday two years ago. And I said, hey, I like an oil painting of myself <laughs> in the most obnoxious manner. You know, I just thought only famous people, only powerful people have oil paintings of themselves. Great, let's get one. So yeah, so she's like, well, you know, that's a lot to ask. She agreed to do it. And it took about hundreds of hours, at least 100, if not 200 hours wow. to just get it exactly right. And she was telling me how the background is a solid brown, because if you look at the painting by famous painters, especially in the Getty Museum, where we go a lot, all of them have a very simple clothing and a very unified, I guess, the same color background, which is brown or black or something like that. So she did it like that. And uh, it was real good. So it's hanging in my office right now. So waiting. It's hanging in your office waiting. And I have to, I will share. So when you originally told me the story, I thought it was the best thing ever. I recall, I'd like to say I demanded, but I think I requested inside. I was demanding that you send me a photo of it, which you did. Yep. So I can attest that it is a fantastic painting. I will not be surprised if there's outreach for more to see the painting. We'll just see what happens. But I think that's a fantastic story and we will work together to get it up on the wall one way or the other. Yeah. You know, one day if I die on my line of duty, if I just work too hard one day and I just drop dead, <laughs> I hope my painting will make, make its the way. The painting will go on. The yeah. painting will go on. Let's, well, I don't <laughs> want to agree to that fate for you, but I still think it's funny that you should say that. All right. So switching gears a bit to your practice, which you previewed for us at the beginning. Tell me more about it. Tell me more about what you do as an IP lawyer at Foley and Lardner. 
Sure. So a lot of what I do, the bread and butter is patent prosecution, writing the patent application based on the technical description by the inventors, and then prosecuting it, meaning responding to the patent office rejections and objections. They say, well, you can't get a patent because you're missing a word here, or you know, you distinguish yourself against this piece of background technology that had been existed for the past five years. And we, you know, we have this back and forth with the patent office. I like that a lot. Uh, that gives me a lot of time with the client that allows me to communicate with the inventors in a way where I understand technology, right? Patent attorneys are the ones, are the engineers who cannot invent, but are just kind of <laughs> taking other people's work product and repackaging it in a way to get them a patent. Can I pause you for one second? So you just said patent attorneys are the engineers who cannot invent, so we help right. others with their inventions. Oh, I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure a lot of my colleagues would disagree with me, but I think the best thing about it is that you don't have to yourself invent the cutting edge technology. Your clients right. are teaching that to you. Right. And you know that and you learn you learn something new. You learn something new every day. Every day you're seeing, okay, so the world is gonna move forward. You know, in I, I know about it five years before everybody else does, you know. That is a very exciting way to convey that. If someone may have conveyed that to me earlier, no, I probably still would have just become a general litigator, so never mind. But I really appreciate the way you just defined that. That was great. Yeah, I mean, I have engineering friends, and they're like, "Oh, look, this new thing had come out." Blah blah blah. And uh, you know, I can't say anything because obviously it's privileged. That's right. That's right. But, you know, in my mind, I'm like, "Ah, oh, I knew about that. I knew about <laughs> that." And then they always say, "Well, Galen, you know, you're a lawyer now. You're not an engineer. You, you know, you don't understand this stuff." I'm like, Psst. "I knew this stuff way more than you." Right. You have some insights and you know yeah. what's coming out now and you have an idea of what might happen in five years, it sounds like. Yeah. I mean, five years, 10 years, you know, sometimes the technology, we invent stuff, but we just can't implement it commercial fashion, right? Or something right. has not worked out because to apply for an invention, you only need conception and a reduction to practice in a way where it's just at an experimental level may be sufficient, but it doesn't mean you have to have a exact working prototype and, and that's commercially feasible for everybody. That's really helpful insight. Um, I often perpetuate in a friendly manner, mm -hmm. some of the, oh, I don't know, disputes we may have as lawyers, depending on what practice area we have. So you kind of have litigators look at corporate lawyers and think, I don't get what you do, but I'll probably be litigating it 10 years from now. Yeah. And then I think in a lot of ways, and maybe I'm just speaking for myself, I shall speak for myself, not the industry. We all look at the IP lawyers and we're like, I don't understand that at all. But I think the way you just described it was really user-friendly, as well as the making it clear that it doesn't have to be at the working phase to get the patent, which further supports why you really would have an idea of what's to come. That's right. I really, really appreciate that. And I know you also mentioned when we've talked before how being Chinese and how that affects your practice, like your, your client relationships, the you know way in which you're able to appeal to those who have a similar background. So if you could just share some about that, I would appreciate it. Sure. So at the beginning of my practice, I think there was a common belief that uh, Chinese clients, no matter how big, just simply did not want to spend the big firm legal costs. And I think that to some extent is true, is true today as well. But what I figured out is, you know, a lot of these companies are, are indeed Chinese American because they are run by people who immigrated from China, just like me, that have taken roots in the United States, that are running companies like at least Chinese American companies, if not entirely American companies, hiring American. And they want to do business the American way. They understand that in order to do business in America, you've got to have a lawyer that you trust. You've got to have a law firm that you trust. You've got to have somebody to handle your legal stuff so you can manage your liability. 
is a slightly different way of doing business in China. I think they're it's getting better in China, of course, but definitely more so in the United States. So I work with a lot of companies like that, where I have people that are approximately my age that are Chinese Americans, basically. Their kids are all English speaking. They don't their kids speak very little Mandarin, and they're like, okay, how do I make my business better? So those are the clients I work with. We actually do a really good job at cross selling with these clients because we can handle everything. They don't need to go to a million lawyers, right? For all different things, we have we're a one stop service firm, and I work with just so many groups: labor, employment, business, litigation, and we just get so much done for these clients. And once they know us, they're it's really more likely that they like us more because we are really, really efficient. We are our firm model is being the stewardess of their companies, and that resonates with Chinese culture definitely. Right, right. You you want to work with counselors that are watching out for you, right? A lot of other, I guess, service services do not have the same types of duty as we do, and you know it it takes a while to explain to them that look, you don't have to worry because you know there are some cases in China where the lawyers are holding companies hostages. Because they knew about the confidential information of those companies. That's not not a lot of them, but it happens. It happens. It happens. Yeah. So it's something that takes a while of explaining, and eventually they get it because you know you have to consistently show that duty over time, so that people get familiar with you. Build that trust. Yeah, and you know it's、uh, really good. It's been really rewarding. It's it's more so when I see the clients themselves turning more American. You know, their beliefs change. They, their beliefs do change over time. Yeah, tell me about that. What does that mean? I mean, I can imagine what that means. But if you could just, and like I said, no, I don't need any specific client、sure. details at all. But just that general idea of turning more American. What does that mean? Like, if you work with a Chinese affiliate, or if you have a Chinese parent company, right, you inevitably will be influenced by the way that they do things, right? Or you have to at least explain your decisions in the United States, right? Trust is always an important issue、mm-hmm. because you want the parent company to trust. To trust you, to trust what you're doing is best for the company, for everybody, including the the one in the United States and the one in China, and you have to justify your actions. So, especially when they first come over to the United States, right? They know that they want to be Americans, they just, they just don't know how. Yeah. So they have these prior conceptions, and then slowly you kind of tell them, okay, this is a better way to do things. And in the beginning, they're like, no, 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 I don't want to do that. I understand the risk. I understand that maybe what I'm doing is not optimal. But I won't do that because it's difficult to explain to my parent company why that is. Yep. And then little by little, they realize, okay, you know, there is an advantage that we we have not seen before. So maybe this we can try this way. And then when they try it, they like it. And sometimes they incorporate the, both the Chinese way of doing business with American way of doing business. So they get the best of both worlds. And that's what I've been advocating: is you don't have to choose one way or the other.、Uh, many. Aspects of the American culture actually resonates with Chinese culture as well. I, I see a lot of similarity in the sense that both culture value hard work, and you will go far in America and in China if you have hard work. So you know a lot of that just resonates with them. Absolutely, and this is one of my favorite things that you're talking about because, as you know, you know I'm director of diversity and inclusion at the firm, and so I think these discussions are so important to have and to acknowledge and those similarities. And I will say, in some ways, it adds to both the complexity of what you're saying, but also the straightforward nature, right? That hard work is hard work, good ideas are good ideas, and that after you build a relationship as a trusted business advisor, you can help get a client there. Although it does make me on kind of a different question, and I'll see what you you have in terms of your thoughts on this. 
But in my role, it comes up at Foley and in other roles I've had at firms where I will also make people aware of those cross-cultural differences, right? So even leading workshops or trainings on cross-cultural differences, which are frequently trying to make Americans aware of just how American we are. Yes. Because often we forget we even wear that American lens Mm -hmm. and it will show up in our business interactions, particularly when we are able to work with someone from another country. So I'm just wondering if you've seen, and not not like specifically fully, but just in general, kind of a cross-cultural or culture clash that can occur. And if you have any kind of thoughts on how one can either raise their awareness, is it about you know, let's give an example. You know, I want to reach out to a Chinese company, you know, hypothetical, nothing specific, nothing related to what we do at work day to day. Is it I should go learn a bit about culture there? I should find someone who's Chinese. How do I navigate that? Sure. I think definitely knowing the culture is very important. I know we've our China practice here at Foley has been pretty good at that. We've had a lot of good attorneys, Chinese or otherwise, that are really familiar with Chinese culture. We have people who speak Chinese, even though they're not born Chinese. And that's really impressive. I, you know, in terms of cultures, I haven't seen a clash of them, but I do see certain times we, I feel like uh, people just in general, maybe not even fully, but just in general could do better in terms of understanding what each other mean, you know, because, you know, as an example, in Chinese culture, a lot of things are unsaid. If they say, I'll get back to you, it pretty much means a no, right? They will just not tell you no. They won't tell you, okay, yeah, we're sorry, we're not doing it. They will just say, okay, I'll get back to you. But then they don't get back to you for a month. You know, and it's like, uh, yeah, you know, it, it happens all the time. But if you knew the culture, you would know what that yeah. meant. That's a minor point. You know, I think most Chinese companies I work with, they don't, they wouldn't care if you didn't know their culture, you know, if you do a good job. I mean, that just how, I mean, a lot of these, they're pretty international. But, um, you know, in terms of sort of this, the culture integration, one thing that I do, and a lot of people, including our clients, tell me I need to be an ambassador of the Chinese culture to America. I'm like, no, of course I don't need to be an ambassador, but I can spread it. Just, I mean, I don't have to make a concerted effort to say, okay, I'm spreading Chinese culture. I think, I don't think that's necessary because, you know, I think a lot of Americans already know a lot about Chinese culture, but I think there is a way about food that gets people. I think if you want to spread the culture, the food is the key. Interesting. I didn't know we would get here, but go on. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, please. <laughs> I like making turkey. I love making steak. I love making a pot roast or you know pasta, fresh pasta. I've been getting to that. But a lot of times our colleagues, they're saying, well, I want to go to your house. I want you to make the beef noodle. I want you to make the uh, stewed pork belly. And that's what they like because they don't have this authentic Chinese cooking, home cooking. They can go to restaurants, but it's not authentic. And it's also not free, right? They come over. I cannot charge them for it. They're looking for a free meal. So, I mean, I was like, like, when do I get to make you pasta? When do I get to make you a lobster fresh pasta? It's real good. No, 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 no. I want you to make uh, the fish, the the stir fried fish fillets that you make. I want you to make hot pot. I want you to take me to like the Sichuan uh, spicy hot pot. I was like, okay, fine. So we can go there. So in a way, I guess I am the ambassador, right? You know, one thing that was crazy to my wife who just immigrated to the United States is that every Foley attorney knows how to use chopsticks real well. Interesting. Right? Go on. Yeah. I don't actually, and now I feel pressure, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think you, you use it much better than a lot of other people. 
she thought that American people didn't know how to use chopsticks because it's a very difficult thing. Because, you know, in China, they're like, okay, everything that we have that's unique is very difficult to use for all the other. But that's not true. All our colleagues use it real, real well, probably better than me. And it's because they, they are open to that culture. Yeah. So that's why when I bring them to see our Chinese clients, and this is a story I always want to tell. I think he might not appreciate it, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it anyway. Well, please omit anything that some, but, you know, share it, but, you know, yeah. leave out what you need to leave out then. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I will leave his name on set because I know. Please, please yeah. do. <laughs> we went to China for a pitch to a certain large computer company, right? And then I have a really good relationship with this, the high level management and we're, we're really good friends and we went to dinner. At dinner, so they are all, um, I guess, men of the middle age and above. So at dinner, they wanted to know whether we would like to eat kidney, kidney skewers. And I look at my colleague who's clearly not Chinese and I'm like, yeah, I'm not sure how he's going to respond. And he was like, yeah, sure, let's do it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we had it and it was really good. He liked it. And then I said, you know, that's really, a, you know, it's something that has health benefits to middle-aged men, not too much for young men. And it was, you know, it's kidney, it's an intestine. He was like, yeah, I'm open to try new things. Yeah. But I just, I mean, I couldn't believe he did. I couldn't believe he, uh, he said, yeah, I'm down to try some kidney. But, you know, he goes on to say, you know, because clearly the potential clients wanted want to eat it. They were just wanted to make sure if he was okay with it. Yeah. So he made them comfortable. He wasn't like, okay, I'm the guy who's not gonna. That's such a good point, though. That's such yeah. a good point. Being open and making them comfortable. Yeah, because I think it's somewhat off putting if they say, okay, do you want to have these entrails? And then your response is, no, 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 I don't eat that. What is that? That's so gross, you know? Yes. Which does happen from time to time. But you know, with Foley attorneys, I've seen people they really try to get out of their comfort zone and try new things. Well, obviously, that's heartwarming for me as the director of diversity and inclusion. So yeah, I like hearing that story. And I want to be mindful of our time. But I had a couple other things I wanted to ask you. Sure. Before I ask you the final question. First, is there anything else you wanted to share that we haven't gotten to? I know last time we talked, you told me you were gardening and you were growing tomatoes. And you learned how to make them sure they didn't burst. So I found that super interesting. And I and as you can see, and listeners can hear, I'm a bit of a random person. <laughs> but, but if there's anything else to share about, you know, Galen, you that we haven't touched on, you know, please take a few minutes to share. Sure. So as the pandemic rages on and there's no imminent plan to return to the office, I have taken up gardening, which is the last thing I thought I was going to do. I hired somebody to do my garden, but now I felt like it was just, there was just nothing else to do. Okay. And I'm going to pause you for one second to share for those who listen to this in the future. It is now July, 2020. So we are, I guess, four-ish months into coronavirus, quarantine and all that, but go on. So you've started doing your own gardening. Yeah. So my aunt did my gardening before, actually. She grew a lot of tomatoes, different types, cherry, heirloom, and the large ones. And I've taken, you know, I, I like biology. So I've taken the best tasting tomatoes and I've kept them. And then I've replanted them. And then when these things, that's, when they sprouted out, I separated them out. I relocated them. So now I have about a hundred some tomatoes. Wow. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. I have a, there, my neighbor who uh, is also very into gardening, she always gives me tomatoes. She gives me like five a day. And then yesterday she in fact came to my backyard for the first time. She's like, wow, you have a hundred tomatoes? And then all of them, she, she thought that my tomatoes, I, I did a better job than she did. I don't think that's true, but I do have a lot and they, you know, they're all going to be uh, very plump very soon. 
Wow. And okay, before I ask the final question, you told me when we last spoke that, and I, I can't garden anything, everything I plant dies, but I just thought that was, was a really interesting fact that to not cause tomatoes to explode, it was all about when you watered them. That's right. That's right. Because sometimes when you don't water the tomato for a while and then you water a lot of water and then the plant sucks up so much water that the tomato actually bursts from Burst. taking too much water because he thinks he's not going to get water for a long time. Thank you for sharing that. That's <laughs> something that those listening did not know we'd touch on. It's really important information. Yeah. But in wrapping things up, the last thing I wanted to ask you was general advice you have. My hope is that people beyond attorneys at Foley and Lardner listen to this. You know, Maybe it'll be law students or somebody in college and, you know, maybe they're an immigrant, maybe they're not, but, you know, advice for someone, like kind of what would your advice have been to your 16 year old self when considering being a patent attorney, you know, any tips? I just think that, you know, life, there's going to be a lot of obstacles and difficulties, but it just depends on how you face, you face them. If you want to achieve something, there's going to be a lot of difficulties. You just kind of, every day, you're just going to move the ball forward a little bit. And even though sometimes it feels like, you know, it's not, it's going really, really bad. I think, you know, as long as you just move the ball forward a little bit every day, you just know, you'll you be okay. That's really great advice. Well, with that, I just want to ask, you know, if people wanted to get in touch with you, where's the best place to find you? I'm guessing Foley and Lardner's website. Yeah, Foley website, it has my email. Uh, it has my phone number. Feel free to drop me an email or call me or, you know, message me on Skype. Perfect. Thank you so much, Galen. It was a pleasure having you on the podcast today. Pleasure is all mine. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Galen. I am here with a quick update, which is that as of February 1st, 2023, Galen joined the partnership of Foley and Lardner. Congratulations, Galen. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.